Or, you know, what are we going to do about this? Are we loading up? Are we moving? Are we, yeah. are we breaking contact? You know, what are we doing? And I look, kind of look back at them. I'm in my fighting hole. And they seem scrambled. They seem like they don't really, like they seem like urgent, like they don't know what to do. And they're, you know, on the radio and they're just kind of trying to figure it out. And you could kind of see that dynamic unfolding. And that kind of made shit worse. <laughs> it was like, damn. And then they were like, you know, just just take cover. Don't even don't even face outboard anymore, which was a little bizarre because, you know, you always maintain your sector of fire and you're always on security. And now we're just taking cover in our fighting holes. And then it was like, God damn, man, we let's I mean, if there's nothing else that we can do, let's just load up in the vehicles, break contact and kind of reposition or something. Welcome to another edition of the Kick Cage, and please give a very warm welcome to Christian Holloway. Christian, how are you? Good, brother. I appreciate it. Thanks for uh, having me on. It's absolutely my pleasure. Now, uh, starting at the beginning, man, did you sign up at a young age and see some stuff at an incredibly young age, in my opinion. Let, let's let's start there. Let's talk through that. Um, what was it that attracted you to uh, joining the military? Because it does take a, a certain person to step up and serve a greater cause. What was it that inspired you? Yeah, I think I had a bit of influence, for, you know, from my family. Um, my grandfather was in the Army. My dad was in the Air Force. And, um, <clears throat> you know, growing up as a kid, I was just kind of that that kid wanting that adventure and um was you know of course influenced by uh, you know action movies and stuff like that and um but you know like also as as you know i got into high school and um after 9 11 happened i kind of got that sense of you know our our country's in need and um and, and somebody has to do this you know so that sense of service um and kind of just wanting to do my part and contribute um i think that kind of played a big role in it as well and um even though i was pretty young of course i still you know um maybe that even kind of played into it where i was like you know uh it doesn't matter you know how how young i am i still think that i can contribute and you know do my part and uh, i kind of you know, almost took that in, uh, in a, you know, as a sense of pride, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm this young, but I'm still going to try to go and, and, and do my part. What, what would you describe your um, character at that age? Were you, were you um, a sensitive person, a creative person? Were you a strong minded person? Were you resilient at that age? What, what was your characteristic? Man, I mean, to be honest, like in high school, I was a knucklehead, you know, um, I was into sports and stuff and I was pretty athletic. Um, but there there was certainly like a bit of the military and, and the Marine Corps in particular that was like, I know if I go there. I'm going to get some discipline, I'm going to get some order in my life and I'm going to get stronger, both, you know, mentally and physically. And I knew that it would be a challenge. And so some, you know, I think some people go into the military and in, in the Marine Corps in particular with, uh, you know, already pretty capable, you know, um, and thinking that it's well within the realm of possibility for them to 
to get through and succeed. Well, with me, that wasn't really the case. It was like, I know this is going to be a test for me. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure how I'm going to fare, but um, I'm, I'm glad I did. And as I went through, you know, it, you know, the Marine Corps did a good job of kind of building that uh, resilience and mental toughness. Uh, and, and that's kind of what I was looking for. What was it like uh, for you so stepping off that bus, uh, lining up and, and getting your first experience of a drill sergeant shouting at you? Man, it was intense to be, you know, to be absolutely honest, um, you know, and I, I kind of feel fortunate for the time that I went through because, you know, like with anything, as time goes on, you know, things change and evolve and uh, standards and kind of like the attitude. And I just kind of think that at the time that I went through, there was still a, a real sense of of seriousness and urgency. And it was it got real really fast and it, it became very serious. And, you know, and. Um, and that's, you know, that stress inoculation, that that's what it's all about. Right. And yeah. and it, it begun the first second. And so you, you begun getting tested immediately. And, uh, you know, a lot of people have never been through anything that intense. I hadn't at that point. And so I was like, oh, here we go, you know, and uh, it got real quick. Going through your, uh, your basic training, um, who was your male role models? Was it some of the drill sergeants? Uh, your NCOs during that time, or, or was it seniors that were on the course? Who was it that you were looking up to for, you know, that that is who I want to be. That's good leadership. That's the the person I want to follow. Yeah, I, I would say probably my all of my drill instructors. You know, in in Marine Corps boot camp, you never kind of know what you're going to get whenever you you um, with your drill instructors. They can come from all walks of life, all different MOSs. And they go do a V billet. It's a temporary deal. They go there for three years and they do their drill instructor time. Well, um, I, of course, signed up to go into the infantry and uh, every single one of my drill instructors were infantry guys. So I, you know, kind of looked up to them just for that, of course. And um, not, not only that, but I mean, they were just, they were kind of like that poster boy Marine, just very squared away, very fit. And uh and you kind of looked at them and you were like, these guys are dangerous, you know, like they're warriors. And uh, so I, that, that certainly influenced me. And um, so for, for boot camp, yeah, I would say it was, you know, that pretty much came from my drill instructors. And how would you say that your mindset changed over that period of time? Uh, you know, even though you, you, you're still this very young man with a developing mind, um, you're still trying to find your your way in the world. How do you feel that you um, grew during that time period? Yeah, again, you know, like boot camp for me, um, it was a test. You know, it just wasn't all easy. I didn't just um, fly right through. Um, so there was a lot of growth there. You know. <laughs> Graduating boot camp for me was a big deal. You know, that was one of the most significant days of my life. Um, whenever uh, you know you become a U.S. Marine, and uh, so I think you know, in that time period, I evolved quite a bit. 
going out of boot camp then just talk us through the through the next process of um of a marine's journey because um obviously for our uk listeners it would be a, a different concept sure um so yeah right after that you get like 10 days of leave get to go home and relax a bit um and then you're right back at it you go to the school of infantry and if you're an infantry guy you um go to what they they used to call infantry training battalion and i think that's changed um, as far as just the naming convention uh, and the non-infantry folks go over and kind of do a an abbreviated infantry course so they can have an infantry base and then they go on to go do their um, specific MOS training to learn their their skills whereas the infantry guys they stay with that and they're in, they're there a little bit longer doing that I believe so I believe School of Infantry for the infantry guys is um, around two months, two and a half months, if I can remember correctly. And, you know, it's just that, you know, very baseline um, infantry skill sets across the board is like, you know, uh, show a bit of proficiency in the, in the basic skills, to get you familiar with all of the different types of weapon systems that you could be coming across and um, and get you ready. And then there's a lot of like, um, you know, physical conditioning into it every day, you know, every day you're, you're, you're um, PTing. Um, and then built in throughout the course, there's series of of hikes, uh, or rucking. And, um, and that, you know, that kind of progresses from you, you know, start, you know, a 5k, and then you go 10k, 20k. Um, and of course, land navigation, and, you know, map reading and, um, the individual roles of a, of an infantry squad. And, um, and that's about it really. And then you, after that, you kind of move on to, you get your duty station, wherever you're going to be assigned and into the, the fleet Marine force. And, uh, and then you go to the fleet and then everything gets even harder. Um, obviously you said that this was, um, you know, post nine 11 for you. Did you have that realization that, you know, even though you're being tested to to become a marine and you're enjoying it and you're going through these different phases, was there a realization that you you know you would be going to combat? Yeah, yeah, there was. Um, and you know, at that time, it was still pre oath, uh, well, pre invasion of Iraq. So you know, September 11th had happened. We had already had um, you know a pretty successful special operations campaign in Afghanistan in 0102. Um, and there was actually some Marines that were deployed to Afghanistan around that time. And they had done their deployment. They had come back to the States and, and a few of them had kind of switched over to um, instructor duty at that school of infantry. So as we were going through, you know, we were kind of um, getting told by a lot of those Marines that, Hey, you know, this is just kind of beginning. And, um, it's highly, highly likely that we'll either redeploy to Afghanistan and everybody kind of knew that Iraq was in the works and that that was spinning up. And so there was that sense of, you know, hey, fellas, this is real. Train hard because um, you're likely going to get into a combat situation very soon. And that's very that that was very true. That's ex pretty much exactly what happened for me. Did it? Did it play on your mind at all once you were told that information of what it was like? Or because Afghanistan in those early days was very much special operations, there wasn't a lot of um, you know, kinetic operations. It was quite sure. quiet in uh, scalpel-like. Um, 
did that sort of give you a false sense of security if it was going to be all right? Because obviously, you know, the history books tell a, a different story, especially when it comes to Fallujah, of, of of what it was like. So did you have that sort of false impression of what it was going to possibly be like? Not initially, no. Um, it was it was intimidating, you know, just to be quite honest, you know. Um, 18 years old. Uh, I had just turned 18, you know, kind of at that time. I turned 18 in boot camp. So just, you know, still very much a kid, immature. And um, to hear all that, you know, it was it was intimidating. Yet at the same time, you know, I knew that it was something that I was willing to take on. I was willing to do. Um, but there was certainly a sense of, of uncertainty and um, kind of that fear of the unknown of how that would actually play out and what that they didn't, you know, they were. The Marines, although there, you know, wasn't a lot going on, you know, they were still uh, immersed in that environment. And I think we're seeing everything that the Army and, and uh, you know, SF was doing at that time. And, you know, there was, there was, like you said, although it was a little bit more precise and a little different, a little bit more unconventional, there was still combat, yeah. you know, and that was the first combat that, Marines had been around or, or taken part in uh, for quite a long time. So they were like, hey, that was real, you know, and th that's going to be happening again. And um, so, yeah, I was like, man, that's, you know, this is, this is real. And that there was that, you know, sense of just unknown, right? That how would I perform in these types of environments? Am I going to be prepared? Uh, do I do I have the the right amount of training and uh, all of those feelings? Um, and like like you alluded to, you you said you were you were going to find that out pretty quickly. How quickly? I know it was very quickly, but how quickly did it seem to you that you were getting those orders to you know ship out? And how did how did that make you feel at that precise moment? Yeah, so I mean, it happened really quick. It's because School of Infantry wraps up. I get to my unit. My unit's in a workup, but upon arrival, they were in the middle of a workup, and um, I, I have no really clue what's going on. You know, everything is still so new, yeah. and um, so I think towards the end of the workup, you know, there the rumors kind of started about that we would be deploying soon and uh you know possibly iraq and it, and at that time you know not being like really familiar with politics and and foreign policy and everything that our country's doing even though i'm in the military i'm still a kid man i'm like i'm not watching the news every day uh it's just that wasn't something i did when i was 18 years old and we didn't have like a smartphone we could just pop up and look at the news you know <laughs> uh so so i was like you know a little confused with Iraq and why are we going to Iraq? What's that have to do with Afghanistan and everything that happened in 9-11? And I really didn't have a like a very good understanding on the the connection there or the purpose of why we would be going to Iraq. And you know, in the in the Marine Corps and the infantry, they don't really, I mean, that's not really the you know a, a big deal for them to really explain to you very well their idea is like do what we say go where we go and uh so it was one of these things where it was like you just roll on with it man all right we're training um uh and we wrap up that uh workup and it was a whole you know battalion workup 
um, and go on pre-deployment leave, I think over Christmas. And then after Christmas, when we came back, there was still some speculation, I think, as to whether or not we were going to go. And, you know, we weren't getting 100% word. Um, but, I, you know, so for timeline purposes, I think I, if I remember correctly, I got to the fleet in November, wrapped up that, that uh, work up that month, went home in December, 30 days pre-deployment leave, which was nice. And man, after we got back, at, you know, at the start of the new year, and that was 2003, um, as soon as we got back, it was like, all right, we're deploying, we're going to Iraq. And uh, so the workup is complete. And it was like, we're getting new desert issued um, camouflage uniforms. And we're getting, you know, fitted for our mop suits and getting everything kind of ready and trying to focus a little bit more on like NBC stuff, nuclear, biological and chemical, because of course, that was uh, a suspected threat that we were going to have to deal with at that time. And uh, so that played kind of a big role on getting ready and making sure that everybody, um, you know, we were PTing with gas masks on and stuff like that. And at that time, it was like, okay, this is, this is all happening really quick. And yeah, again, it was, it was intimidating, like uh, intimidating, but at the same time, you know, I knew like my, all of my senior Marines, they were pretty salty. They were, they were solid guys. And, uh, you know, my battalion is, or and my regiment, 7th Marine Regiment out in 29 Palms, California, was known for, you know, training pretty damn hard. And so, uh, you know, a big sense there was like, I just wanted to make sure I didn't let those guys down. And uh, I was good enough to, to be a good contributing member of our squad. Obviously, eighteen at this time. Looking looking back at that, um, just reflecting on that age alone, it, it, you know, putting somebody else in those shoes, in those in those boots at the age of eighteen. Um, do you think, you know, an eighteen-year-old of this generation would be as prepared as what you felt? Man, great question. Uh, I I mean, I really hope so, uh, but. And, you know, there's a, there's a, a bit of like what society has done to, to, to men and women at that age. And there's also like the element of the Marine Corps, right? Cause the Marine Corps or the army, you know, of course they, they have their role. They, they, it's their job to get, um, you know, transform a random civilian into a warrior. So I think from the, I, I have some, some friends who actually have some uh, kids that have just joined the Marine Corps right now. So I'm, I'm able to kind of like look at them and see the things that they're going through. And yeah. uh, I think honestly, for the Marines sake and the infantry guys, they're going to be good to go. They're going to be fine. That warrior spirit is still alive and well, they're still training hard. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I think the standards are getting more formalized at like the school of infantry and um and so they're going into the fleet uh maybe even better prepared um i mean i i would hope so right we just wrapped up 20 years of war so we've learned quite a bit um and then also just speaking back on that as far as the marine side and and, and the army you know as far as getting them prepared and making sure that they have what they need you know when it comes to like gear and stuff I mean, it is night and day 
from what we had uh, going into war as to compare to, you know, what they're getting issued and what they're getting fielded now, the weapon systems, everything, uh, everything from body armor, helmets, MVGs, suppressors on their rifles, and, um, you know, the medical training and the medical equipment, everything is just so much, so much better. So, you know, I think that's a good thing. Now, when it comes to like society and <laughs> what is society doing to our young, uh, you know, our young adults going into the military, man, yeah, that's another. I, I'm not so sure that there are as many people like me and my peers when we first joined. Um, now, at that time, it was, you know, totally different. You know, the, the United States, Britain. Australia, everybody was pretty united and patriotic going into that. Um, and, and, you know, after 20 years of it and the terrible Afghan withdrawal, yeah, I certainly think that things have changed. Um, so, and I think that it is what it is, man. I mean, it's, it's, I think that's kind of inevitable, you know, I just, I just hope that the army and the Marine Corps and the Navy keep doing their part and, uh, you know, maintaining standards and, um, and, uh, putting out a good product. Okay. So let, let's, uh, put yourself back in those boots and you're, you're, you're heading off to Iraq at 18. What, what was it that you were told was going to be your, you know, your standard operating procedures? What was your rules of engagement? Were you thinking that you were going out there to a, a heavily, um, combat environment, or were you thinking you were going to do some military policing, and uh, almost a, a peacekeeping force. What what were you told? No, it was for, for us. It was you know uh, we are going to be engaging Saddam's army. We are going to be have a, a list of in a, in a set of, uh, of objectives from south to north, starting at Basra, and we're working our way up to Baghdad. And as we go and as we progress, we're going to be engaging. Um, different military units within Saddam's army. Um, and so it, there was, for us, there was no mistaking. It wasn't going to be, initially, it wasn't going to be peacekeeping, wasn't going to be anything like that. Now, I will say, though, when we got to Kuwait um, and we were kind of in our, in the desert staging, there was a sense of, you know, for me at least, it, uh, it was like, you know, is this actually going to happen? Because looking back at Desert Storm, Desert Shield in the early 90s, you know, we had a presence in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, but n nothing actually went into, uh, into Iraq. There was no real true deep land invasion where we're engaging their army. Of course, it it got kinetic, but that all kind of stayed right there in Kuwait. Um, and, you know, there was kind of the the word at the time was, you know, a big part of that was like a show of force. And so, you know, amongst us lower ranking guys, there was sometimes the, the conversation was, you know, is, is this just a show of force? Are we actually going to push across and, and, um, you know, actually go to war. And uh, so added to the uncertainty and, uh, that all kind of, you know, it, everything pretty much for us 
got very real, real quick. You know, we had prepared and we we're training out in the Kuwait desert and just kind of waiting around for that word. And then when we kind of finally got the word that we're going to go to the line of the, the LOD, the line of departure, uh, which was, you know, right there on the border. It got real quick for us. We got started getting get engaged by the Iraqi army's uh, artillery. And uh, so for us, for my unit and my company, I mean, we got combat immediately. And, and I thought that was pretty interesting. I was like, man, you know, we're, we're not, we haven't even moved yet. I mean, we're getting close. They knew that we were getting prepared. We were going to push. Everything started becoming very real at that point, you know. And, um, and then now they're, they're firing artillery at us. And it was kind of, I mean, it was kind of eerie because, you know, we're in a rural desert type of setting where we were at. So you're seeing explosions in the distance and you're just, okay, an explosion in the distance from artillery. This is like, it could, you know, I don't re exactly remember, but maybe the first explosion was 10 clicks north of us. So 10 kilometers north, it's pretty far. But as those rounds started getting closer and closer, it was like, shit, man. I mean, what are we going to do about this? <laughs> and and uh, or let's 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 uh, get in the vehicles and roll because we were kind of in a defensive position, dug in and fighting holes around our armored vehicles at that time. And uh, so, and then you know, to be you know to be honest, there was a feeling of helplessness. That's what it was, and that sucked. You know, because I remember looking back at the leadership as the round started getting a little closer and it, it didn't seem like there was anything that we could really do at that point. I'm sure that our platoon commanders and our company commander were trying to communicate with the battalion and the regiment and be like, hey, we're kind of just sitting here and these rounds are getting closer and closer. You know, what are we going to do about this? Are we loading up? Are we moving? Are we, yeah. are we breaking contact? You know, what are we doing? And I look, kind of look back at them. I'm in my fighting hole. And they seem scrambled. They seem like they don't really, like they seem like urgent, like they don't know what to do. And they're, you know, on the radio and they're just kind of trying to figure it out. And you could kind of see that dynamic unfolding. And that kind of made shit worse. <laughs> it was like, damn. And then they were like, you know, just, just take cover. Don't even, don't even face outboard anymore, which was a little bizarre because you know, you always maintain your sector of fire and you're always on security. And now we're just taking cover in our fighting holes. And then it was like, God damn, man, we let's I mean, if there's nothing else that we can do, let's just load up in the vehicles, break contact and kind of reposition or something. And so that sucked, man. And then, of course, after that. We got ours, you know, and finally our company got a, a rotary a wing aircraft. To, to assist and a cobra completely annihilated that artillery piece and that was badass to watch and see and it was a, a, a bit of like you know okay all right we're all right you know everything's we're gonna be okay you know at least for the moment and uh and that's kind of what started our entry and as soon as that was over as soon as that artillery piece was was destroyed we loaded up and uh and we pushed north that, that's one hell of a baptism by fire there you know coming from your from your holding area and almost going straight into contact exactly um 
how did that affect your mindset? Were you, were you suddenly thinking, well, I need to get through this one day instead of thinking I need to get through this deployment? Obviously, by what you described, the the contact coming in so quick, you know, shocked your your senior leaders because um, obviously they had no idea. Um, yeah, so just to put it into context, how did that change your mindset for, for the rest of the deployment? Did you start just thinking, I wanted to get through today? rather than I wanted to get through this week, this deployment, this month, et cetera. To be honest with you, it wasn't even, I just want to get through today. It was, I, I want to get through this moment. Yeah. It was time was, you know, was micro. And so after that had gotten down, it was like, okay, we got through this moment on to the next thing. And um, the other, the other part that kind of, that I, you know, just quite frankly sucks about the whole situation and, and, and plays into the whole unknowing and the uncertainty is like being a private in the infantry in 2003. Hmm. Again, back to the whole gear and everything. Like nowadays, almost every single soldier or, or, or Marine has inner squad comms and their ability to communicate. Uh, they may have a map or GPS and, you know, I didn't have any of that. We didn't have any of that. It was still very old school. Um, so, you know, you're in the back of this vehicle, this armored vehicle, and you got 12 guys back there or more, and it's pitch black. It's loud. We just took contact. Now we're moving forward. Where are we going? I don't know. Uh, all I know is when that ramp comes down, we have an immediate action drill. We push out. We provide a defensive posture for the Amtrak. And if we see the enemy, we start aggressing and, and start uh, fighting by fire maneuver. And uh, and so there was just a lot of like unknown. And that that played in a big part of it. That uncertainty, that theme, right, for me personally, it affected me. Uh, and I think it kind of started at that moment on um, that as soon as we got that artillery fire and kind of having not having that immediate ability to, to react or having that immediate plan to, to, to do something in response, that kind of played out into even subsequent deployments, unfortunately, for me. And, um, and I'm okay talking about it. Like, it, it is what it is. You know what I mean? Like, I worked through it, um, but it, it still certainly had an effect on me. Um, yeah. And it was moment to moment initially. The way you describe it, I, I, I just got a, an image in my mind of, of uh, the landing craft on Saving Private Ryan. You're all stood there wondering what's going on, waiting for the ramp to come down to to charge out and, and take that defensive posture. To imagine what that must have felt like is just incredible. It, and for it to carry on as you were going through that deployment. Um, but having that Cobra that angel on your shoulder come down and take out that artillery that must have given you a hell of a confidence boost knowing that having some close air support um, it was a from the road hell of a confidence yeah. boost to be honest whenever i did not and the rest of that deployment whenever i did not hear uh cobras in the air above us i was pissed i was like where are the cobras um because they were like that angel over the shoulder, you know, yeah. throughout the entire deployment. Like, I'm not joking. Like, they, I, I can't state enough how effective they were, how big of a role they played, 
and and like just tons of credit for those guys i mean when it came to like doing your job and you know just to be straightforward and and you know um bringing the fight to the enemy you know those guys got it man i mean they had way more damage than than the lowly infantry guy on the ground you know um so yeah it was really good feeling to to see that um see how effective it was in the destruction because i watched that you know i'm watching that on on my mvgs and i'm i'm seeing it just completely obliterate this thing and and them not being able to do anything to combat it you know um that you know it's not like they were firing rpgs at it or anything you know there was nothing they could do and it was just complete destruction so that certainly gave me a uh you know a counter feeling of all right you know they're they're going to bring the fight but we've got you know we've got good tools <laughs> so you've had that initial shock you've now got a, a sort of sense of relief that you've got uh you know a shield that will uh, sort of protect you from the air uh moving forward from that what um if we can talk about it what was your darkest moment from that first deployment darkest moment um probably once we first started taking casualties you know um and you you know you're getting reports from other units taking casualties and it's one thing when you're you're taking contact and you know initially it was from a distance um but you know we lost one of our snipers early on in the in the push-up um and and then you're hearing uh casualties from other units as they push towards their own respective uh objectives in different cities and um that you know yeah i mean that that had an effect on me you know again a sense of you know back to reality this is real um we are taking casualties um now my unit did not take very many casualties um uh I think in in that deployment we only had um two from from my battalion even just two KIA um a few wounded but so we really didn't take a lot but I mean nevertheless you know when you know guys are in your unit are dying uh that probably be you know that that realism that hit in that that sense of that just that that feeling that that you get the frustration, the sadness, the thinking about their families and thinking about, is this going to happen to me? Um, that was probably, yeah, the darkest. And then, you know, that, that, uh, yeah, we, we also had, you know, to be honest, we also had some friendly, some friendly fires, not friendly fire, but it was, uh, accidents and to, to be specific. And I don't know, really know why, but this kind of messed with me was early on. We had some uh, some Marines that accidentally got ran up, not not in my unit, in a, in a an adjacent unit, but we had just gotten the report, you know, uh, that some Marines had been accidentally ran over by our the armored vehicles that were wow. um, traveling in, and that scared the shit out of me for some. I mean, obviously, again, it's shitty because Marines are dying. It was an accident. It's terrible. It's tragic. But we were in those same vehicles, and we're always, um, when we stop, we're always getting out, establishing our defensive posture, digging fighting holes, 
and they would maneuver and maybe change the positions here and there. And I just got that feeling like, shit, man, I just don't want to get ran over. And I can see that it would be probable. And it, it actually happened. It's dark. Uh, a lot of the times, you know, we're operating at night and, um, and there was that sense of like, shit, I don't want one of these damn things to run me over. And then we had a tank that actually fell off a bridge, I believe. And it went into a, um, into a damn river. And I'm pretty sure all the Marines on that, that tank died. And so there were some accidents that were kind of happening. And I was like, shit, man, are we going to get in, you know, some, some sort of situation like that, you know? Because there was a lot of congestion, you know, there was a lot going on as we were heading north and we hit these objectives. I mean, straight up, there was like traffic jams of U.S. Army armored personnel carriers and tanks and fueling points. And um, I just thought, man, are we going to have something like that happen? And and that kind of got to me Um, that uh, again, that ability of not being able to do anything about that. Did you, um, you know, when you started getting this fear of um ha- having an accident instead of being frontside focused uh from your defensive posture did you start becoming a bit more 360 aware of what was going on you know looking over your shoulder at what friendlies were doing rather than just you know staying frontside absolutely yep i mean short answer yeah and you know that 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 eventually translated into uh, multiple deployments later into into like hyper vigilance you know yeah. that's something that's the one of those very common like PTS uh, symptoms. And um, for me, it certainly started on that deployment and it stuck with me. And even to a certain degree still, yeah. you know, even now uh, uh, with me, but yeah, hyper-focused, constantly looking around and, and you know, losing, losing sleep because of stuff like that, you know, um, uh, even affecting my dreams, strangely enough, man. I mean, it, I, I I'll, I'll give a brief example. Yeah. And this was really strange. I was in my fighting hole one night. I had a saw, so I was a saw gunner. And you you sleep with your weapon in your in your uh, in your fighting hole. And when it was cold, it was freezing when we when we first crossed into southern Iraq. And so you're in your fighting hole, and it's like a little cooler. And uh, so we would break out a sleeping bag, and it's your time. And uh, you would go down and, and try to get some some rest. And you, I had my saw in my bag, zipped up completely, crouched down at the bottom of my fighting hole, just trying to get 30 minutes of sleep. I had a crazy dream I was being ran over. And, and in the dream, I couldn't, I couldn't do anything about it. I was just getting run over, and I'm dying. And I woke up outside of my fighting hole, outside of my bag with my saw out wow. and I had no recollection of that. Absolutely no recollection. I was just crouching right on the edge of my hole. And I came to, and I just thought, man, that was a really crazy dream. Like what the heck? Right. And I'm like, what? And it was just, I was disoriented. I was like, how the hell did I get out of my bag? What's going on? You know? Uh, and I got down I started to get back down in my, in my sleeping bag and back down in my fighting hole. And my platoon sergeant comes running over to me and he was like, what, 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 you know, what's going on? Are you okay? Are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, man, relax. I'm good. Like, cause I, in my brain, I'm just dreaming, you know? Yeah. And when I woke up, I was, I'm good, you know? And he was like, you were just screaming at the top of your lungs. I thought we had, you know, 
a, a, a portion of our position being breached by, you know, the enemy creeping in. And he was like, I thought you were being attacked. You were screaming. And I'm like, no clue what you're talking about. I have no recollection of it. I mean, I was having a crazy dream. And I woke up outside my hole. Just, I don't even know how I, I mean, to get the saw out of the bag, I was scrambling. I was thrashing, I think. And I, and it was, yeah, it was bizarre, man. And um, from then on, even again, that, that stayed with me forever. I, I, I say forever, but those, those dreams, that's when it began on that very first deployment. And they were present and manifested themselves in a few different ways on my second, third, even my fifth deployment, right. even in uh, my normal civilian life, so much so where my wife would just get so used to waking me up and, and calming me down. Um, so for me personally, PTS really it's, it's biggest effect on me was in my sleep. Um, but yeah, that, that's where it started. So, um, you know, taken from this first deployment, you've had the initial shock. You've, you've had the buildup of knowing that you've got air cover. We've talked about your darkest moments going home after this first deployment. Um, how did you feel about that? Actually going home, going back to the States, seeing friends, family. Yeah, it was a little, it was a little weird to be honest, because there was that sense of like, I'm just happy to be alive, happy to be home. Mm. And initially it was like, you guys are done. We victory, we won the war. <laughs> and, um, and it was weird in a couple of ways because all of my friends were still just, you know, right out of high school and, Nobody, they, none of them really had a good understanding as to what we were doing over there. Um, again, it wasn't like, uh, you know, like nowadays, I think with young adults and the youth, they're, they're a little bit more read into like political issues and stuff like that. We weren't, man. We didn't really care about that shit. And so I really couldn't describe much as to what I had just gone through. And I couldn't really relate to any of my normal friends. And I think people were, of course, a little sensitive to talk because they, you know, they didn't know whether or not I had been through something traumatic or not. Yeah, and yeah. they're just, you know, so everything was fine. You know, it was it was all good. But but then there was the sense of also pretty much as soon as we got back, it was like, OK, yeah, we won the war, but we're going back. And it was like, wait a second, you know, like literally we got a victory speech by General Mattis and. It was like, yeah, well, now an insurgency is forming. We're doing another work up uh, and we're, and we're going to redeploy like in six months. So that, you know, that was a little weird to kind of get that feeling of such, again, like for an 18 year old, such significant events, getting this sense of finality. And then that note, we're going back. Yeah. And that was, Again, okay, but a little intimidating. You know, how are things going to be this time? And back to that uncertainty. And, um, and you know, like one thing that I've, that for me, you know, a dynamic that I think maybe doesn't get talked about a, a lot is, you know, that, that early on, you know, I, my mental toughness and like my warrior spirit wasn't nearly as developed you know it was still yeah. developing you know so there was you know there's a lot of guys that are like i want to deploy i want to go back into combat you know 
that uh and for for me at that time that that really wasn't quite there yet you know i was like you know if you if you if you would have told me or asked me hey man do you want to go back to iraq and go back to combat right now i would have been like you're out of your mind no i just survived that deployment why would i want to go back and you know no so i, I you know that feeling that want to kind of get back into the fight that didn't really get developed until later on for me yeah. um so i was like oh awesome we're going back to iraq here we go did anyone uh, say that they'd notice a, a change in you uh, when you'd come back? Um, did they say that you'd perhaps mentally matured from the person that had gone? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Because I, I really didn't talk about it much, you know. Mm. Um, so uh, I think my folks, uh, my parents kind of saw that in me. Um, certainly my... Uh, my wife, I've been with her from the very beginning. So I think she saw kind of like some growth there. Uh, it certainly changed me. Yeah. Going back again. Um, and, and like you said, you did several more deployments after that. Which which was your um, darkest deployment and which was probably the um, the more easier deployment out of, out of those five? Yeah, so the second deployment was definitely my darkest deployment. I had one of my close friends uh, get killed in Fallujah, and uh, and uh, I would say the my last two deployments were to the to the Horn of Africa and in special operations, and they were non combat deployments. There was potential for that given uh, the kind of the terrorist enemy threat in that area, but never went to it. So. The last two deployments were, um, I would say, probably the easiest, so to speak. Um, but yeah, definitely the second deployment, that first uh, initial push into Fallujah, where uh, again we started, you know, taking casualties. Um, I would say also, and, and to be, <laughs> it's been a long time, man. It's it's mm -hmm. crazy how like I I lose sight of timing and events. Because I got uh, blown up pretty, I mean, we we're getting kind of blown up all over the place, you know, RPGs here and there, yeah. artillery, or, you know, yeah, artillery initially, but mortars yeah. in the second and third deployment quite a bit and rockets um, and, and, and IEDs. And I got rocked pretty good. My, my squad got hit pretty hard uh, with two IEDs on our truck. And I can't remember whether that was my second or third deployment. I always forget. Yeah. They were so close. You know, we would deploy six months come home for six months, do a workup, redeploy for six months. Um, and we were in Fallujah like twice, the, the yeah. first end and, and then towards the tail end of Phantom Fury. So they all kind of run together. But that event in particular, that IED was also a pretty dark moment. You know, there was a lot of chaos. Uh, and then again, a sense of helplessness, uncertainty, and not being able to respond. And um, so... And I think there was kind of like those dark moments on on each deployment, besides my last two. Um, not quite remembering which deployment that that IED happened on. Do you do you put that down to perhaps um, TBI, the percussion uh, injury from the explosion, or is it the fact that it was just you were there, you were back, you were there, you were back? It, it, 
which yeah. which one of the reasons do you think would be more fitting? you know because it's like i think there's so i kind of go back to real quick to like the not remembering stuff because mm-hmm. although i can recall some events in pure clarity right there are so many other events that i are just dull they're just gray i don't remember and i think for me what i've kind of thought about over the years as i've processed some of these is i I had these three combat deployments so early on, so fast that there's this sense of self-preservation that comes over you and you will just kind of block out certain things and you're just kind of going through the motions, Mm -hmm. just trying to survive, right? And do the right thing, perform well. And all of that is all pretty stressful on somebody who's not, who, you know, um, I guess who's young and, and, um, just experiencing that for the first few times and so um i think that all played a role with the the after effects Mm -hmm. you know and then but that all has to come back some way or you're it's 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 there right yeah and it'll come back and manifest itself in some way shape form or fashion and i think in in particular for me again it was in my sleep and uh, and you know your brain's got to process those things somehow um but i just kind of think that it's strange that you know consciously there's because i would have you know friends and stuff be like man did we were that one night and you remember this happened and we were taking fire and then i'm like man i don't remember that you know i just don't remember that you think that was your 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 brain protecting you then from from these traumatic experiences so um in a sense that those memories are there, but sort of locked away. Um, so. You know, at eighteen, we're you know we're still still developing, aren't we? We're still not um, what well, our class is a, a fully grown adult. Eighteen, we're still a, a developing young male. So, to have that trauma, you know, protected, grayed out. Do you, do you ever worry that it is going to manifest beyond just your dreams uh, at a later stage in your life? Because I'm. I mean, we're we're still youngish men, aren't we? We're not put out yeah. past you yet. To be honest, I feel confident that that my answer to that question is no. Uh, so, and I think this plays into to a bit of like the me- mental toughness, the resilience, yeah. right? Because in, in, initially, early on, that shit wasn't talked about. Mm. Unfortunately, I kind of I really wish it was. It was taboo, really. You know, you're and you and you're insecure. You're not going to talk about it because if you talk about it. And, and to be honest, like that night when I had that dream and I kind of lost control and I, I didn't have control and my platoon sergeant came running up to me, you know, I felt really bad. I'm compromising my, you know, I'm yelling. We're supposed to be quiet at night yeah. and I'm screaming. I'm like, Jesus Christ, you know, and I'm full of, I'm full uh, around and nothing but a bunch of hard ass Marines. Like, and I kind of get that feeling of like, this makes me look a little weak or something. And that sucked. And so, yeah. you, you know, you don't talk about stuff like that. It wasn't till later. So after the third deployment and as we started deploying more to Afghanistan, as in the Marine Corps, uh, where it was much more normal to be talked about. And it wasn't until really I got into special operations where I was still kind of having these dreams fuck with me at night. And one, one, one morning, my, uh, my team leader, captain of mine, was like, dude you have ptsd you need to go get it taken care of like it's okay 
I do too. I have shit that affects me. I go get help for it. And I'm like, and he, he wasn't being an asshole. I mean, he was, he was giving a shit about his guys. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. And that kind of that realization, uh, and being able to just accept it and own it and kind of take responsibility for it was kind of empowering. I'm like, right on, you know, let me, uh, try to kind of deal with this, you know, and, and, um, talk with it about a, a bit more openly with my wife and have her help me, uh, you know, whenever I wasn't deployed and, uh, you know, that what I'm getting at is that, that that kind of like talking about it, acknowledging it and thinking about it myself, it helped. And I found that over time, those effects, the significance of those effects have reduced significantly. And so that makes me feel confident that, I again, I think there's always going to be some element of it present. Mm. But uh, but the the big deal for me is, I feel much more in control now. Yeah. Obviously, um, you know, your wife, when you were at home, did she ever try and talk to you, you know, before, before your, your, your captain there sort of told you to, to go get it sorted? Did you, did your wife ever try and talk to you about it, uh, about the, about the dreams you were having and, um, try, to encourage you to get help from from her perspective yeah she certainly would would engage with me about it but it wasn't really for her it was always between her and i you know like um where you know we can kind of work on this together you know she would she would kind of just be quick to you know wake me up and make sure that she her presence was in a in a manner that immediately calmed me down brought just brought me back to reality you know and um and so that was kind of something that that we worked out internally to be honest you know um so you know it it really wasn't toward until like after i had gotten out and kind of went through the va process until i started kind of getting and and even being okay with um uh, talking to like psychologists and stuff about those experiences. And, and I, and I, again, I approached it more proactively, like, Hey, you know, the, like, for example, like the hypervigilance thing, you know, like that constant need or feeling that I kind of have to have awareness. Right. Because like in my, I think what plays a, another big part into that, there's a lot, but I mean, a, another big part, like in Fallujah, um, a, for a lot of the deployment, what I was doing uh, was I would take my team, just my team. Like at the time, we're, we're working with Iraqi Army. So we, a lot of the time, we would be doing squad operations during the day. So we would take one of our squad, link up with the squad of Iraqi Army and go patrol. Well, I, I kind of preferred operating at night. So I would take my team and we would go out just by ourselves. So like four to six of us, depending on my attachments. And we would go out and... and um, basically do counter IED. So we would go try to get into a good position to observe um, some of the main routes that were traveled and prevent people from going in there under the cover of darkness and digging in IEDs. Well, naturally, when we're doing that, we're, I, I've got a very small group of, of my guys that I'm in charge of. And so that feeling again of like having to, we're working with a really small group of, of, of Marines. I'm in charge. I can't let anything happen. There was reports and there this happened where in the area near we were operating in, 
there was a team of snipers of Marine Corps snipers that they were up on a roof kind of doing something very similar. They all died. They got ambushed and they got crept up on. And um, that was a big event in the Marine Corps at that time. Mm -hmm. There was, so, you, you know, that plays on your mind and, and knowing that I'm in charge now and these guys' lives are in my hand. And so that sense of hypervigilance, again, I think manifested itself through and played a part into everything that I've kind of talked about. Um, but uh, I can't remember the, the initial question or where kind of where I was going with that. I ended up ranting a bit, but um, no, that's fine. Yeah, I'll, I'll enjoying that. Um, so taking it, obviously, you know, you were just alluding to um, leaving the forces and you were getting in touch with the VA. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it your time to um, leave? Was it, was your contract coming up? Was it a conscious decision to, to leave the military? Was it your decision? Was it somebody else's decision? Yeah, man. Unfortunately, it was not my decision. I, I Once I got into special operations in MARSOC, and uh, I, I, I really took that opposite approach of kind of how I earlier described it as a, as a young kid in the infantry, where yeah. when I got into special operations, I was like, this is my profession. I want to go back. I want to deploy. I would love to go... Um, you know, see combat in different theaters and stuff like that. And I wanted to operate on my team as long as I could, yeah. you know. Um, so, nope, unfortunately. Uh, and, you know, long story short, uh, I got forced out for service limitations. And um, there was, an, you know, at the time, uh, about the 2012 timeframe, the Marine Corps was downsizing. And so they were implementing a bunch of different ways on how to reduce the, uh, the force. One of those was if you had not been promoted to E6 uh, after 10 years, you would basically um, get, you know, they give you an honorable discharge, they give you some separation pay, mm -hmm. and they say thanks, but you got to go. And that's ultimately what happened to me. Um, and that sucks because it was unexpected. Yeah, I thought I was doing well and progressing, and and um, and it and it caught me and my wife by surprise. That was the last thing that I thought would actually happen. And um, you know lesson learned there you know it is what it is you know some things happen for a reason and, and it's all good like i'm good with it but you know being critical of myself um you know in my first enlistment as a young marine i was still a knucklehead you know and i got in trouble a couple times and that essentially held me back a bit so when my peers were getting promoted to e4 i was getting promoted to e3 mm. and so on and so forth so had i kind of just done the right thing at the right time and kept my nose clean and just not been a knucklehead uh, early on, I would have been promoted on time with my peers and none of that would have ever been a problem. I would have already been in E6. Um, and I should have re-enlisted. That played a part into it with kind of like how it all works. But I was uncertain to commit to re-enlist at that time because the career path for MARSOC was not set yet. Right. And so I didn't want to sign the line, take the gamble, and potentially have to go back to the infantry um that wasn't happening and 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 i wasn't alone there like my captain got out a bunch of my teammates got out because they just didn't want to take that gamble so i extended in order to try to see if the mos would come online and it did and i, and I thought it was the greatest thing i'm like my plan worked i extended the mos was created now i am in 0372 and i'm now i'll re-enlist now that i know that i can stay here yeah and uh 
and I got one opportunity on the board to, to get looked at for promotion. But I think ultimately at the end of the day, what happened, what I think happened was because there was, I had everything that I needed to be uh, competitive for promotion. Yeah. Maybe even a little bit more so than my average peers uh, in the big Marine Corps. Um, but I think what it was is they saw that I was on extensions at a time when the Marine Corps was being reduced hmm. and, and, um, they questioned my commitment. They just simply probably questioned my commitment. They, they may have looked at it like this guy's not committed. He would have reenlisted a year ago if he was committed, but I was on extensions. And, and so in hindsight, and I, years later, I thought to myself, I was like, shit, man, I should have just written a letter to the board to be presented with my packet. You can do that where you can just basically explain the circumstances of my yeah. situation, what I'm trying to hold on to do. I've attained the MOS. I intend to reenlist. And I wonder if I would have written that letter and they just simply read that, they would have been like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, this guy wants to stay in. It, he was just kind of waiting for the MOS to come online. And I would have been promoted and everything would have been fine. But you know what, man? It was a weird set of circumstances. Yeah. A lot of people didn't really understand what was happening at that time. And so, you know, I had a lot of guys say, hey, man, this is, this may be fate, you know, your deployment. Your next appointment may be a bad one. And um, it is what it is, man. Just, you know, I'm driving on. So you've gone from being the sledgehammer to the scalpel, uh, going from an infantry to to MARSOC. It sounds like you you enjoyed the MARSOC, being the scalpel better, uh, operating in a smaller group in in different environments. Now, to, to have that choice taken away from you listening to you just then it, it to me it sounds like there are certain sections of that that you put blame on yourself the, the fact that Absolutely. you were 18 year old scrapper um you know not getting promoted you were edging your bets you should have done you felt that you should have wrote a letter um you know how did that play on your mindset because you know it does sound like you blame yourself a bit did yeah. that did that alter your confidence as you were coming out of the forces? Did that change your mindset? Did you put a lot of blame onto yourself at that period of time? Yeah, it did. I it it, it really messed messed with me. I just kind of gave me that feeling like of uh, being unsuccessful, to be quite honest. And that that hurt being in such a competitive unit, such a competitive community of really skilled people and it kind of made me feel like i wasn't good enough and and it so it gave me that feeling and it also gave me the feeling like i can't do what i want to do it's like being in on a, a major league soccer team or a baseball team and and um holding your own being a, a contributor to the team and and really enjoying what you're doing and then having somebody just be like you you're done you can no, no longer play like maybe getting injured and like mm -hmm. you're done i got that feeling it was like shit this is this is tough that was certainly some adversity that i had to deal with um and uh and you know i i i made do uh and i i i you know on the other side of that i was fortunate um because uh, I was able to continue working for the Marine Corps and continue working for MARSOC and 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 teach in a very unique um, area 
that I really enjoyed it. And I still kind of got that sense of service and fulfillment. And I was still amongst my peers, man. I mean, I was still in the command. I was just working as a civilian contractor teaching. So I got fortunate in that. That position was there for me. Um, and, and I got to kind of continue being in that, in that community. So I guess on the flip side, you know, uh, just made do, I exploited an opportunity that was in front of me and I kept driving on. That's a good way of looking at it. Do you, do you feel, um, I don't know, was it healthy for you to go back as a contractor, go back in the environment that you were taken away from? Was that healthy for you? Um, I'm just throwing that question oh, out there. Man. It was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even though you're not, you know, in the mix with the unit, you're not going out and uh, operating, but you were teaching, you, you felt that that was adequate for for your needs of personal wealth at that point in your life. Certainly. Yeah, because I'm still around all the same, all the same people and community of guys that are going through the same things that I had went through and continuing to go through themselves. And um yeah, had I not kind of had that and I just left and got into maybe a normal civilian type of job yeah, with nobody that can relate to those types of experiences, I, there, I, there definitely would have been a void there that I would have had to, uh, to have dealt with. So, um, again, you know, on the flip side, being fortunate, that, that was a, a benefit, still being able to be within that community and and talk with those guys and help people to be honest, man, because yeah. again, like as I, I really strive to be, be um, resilient and mentally strong and push through that type of adversity and help others because there was a lot of now at this time, you know, 2012 plus beyond much more. Well, at this point, dudes in my community have six, seven combat deployments, you know, and yeah. everybody's, okay, the the realism of all this stuff is uh, affects quite a bit of people. And that became very apparent. So then I'm like helping some of my former teammates and stuff get through shit and work, work through work through problems associated with the the stuff that they had seen and gone through on on subsequent deployments. So in a sense, I kind of got to help uh, people who were still in that situation still in need. Um, having significant events on deployments and knowing that they're going to have to go redeploy and having to go through that mentally and, and, and get them kind of ready for that. So I got to still, you know, play a part. It helped. I would imagine they would have felt very grateful for that as well. Having somebody that had been, you know, through that many deplo kinetic deployments in uh, quite a very incredibly hostile environment to have that advice from you being past them and helping work through their problems. I'm sure they, you know, really appreciated it and it helped. Yeah, I think it's, that's a big part of it, man. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of different ways to cope and in, interventions and stuff. But I mean, just being amongst that community, being, among, being amongst people that have similar situations and just being able to have some open dialogue and talk about it, I think it's a big help. One of the things I've talked about previously with another guest was, um, you know, yes, there is the VA. Uh, it It's good in some respect it, it has its flaws in other respects um uh, the fact that some of the doctors are civilians you know and they do like to paint everybody with the same brush no matter what the symptoms are having you know 
veterans that have perhaps looked into their own symptoms and realized you know if it is pts if it is depression hypervigilance if it is you know even the, the feeling of the lack of the the traumatic stress they, they're craving that chaos um having the the veteran foundations and, and startups helping veterans almost supporting the va do you think that that over these recent years has been a, an incredible boost for the veteran community hundred percent, man. Incredible. So fortunate to have a lot of those organizations exist mm. and help so many veterans. Because um, ultimately, you know, what are, what are the, a lot of them, what are they doing? You know, they're, they're, they're getting together with people that have similar experiences. They're being active. They're outside. Yeah. They're getting some sun. They're doing something maybe even competitive. Right, they're hunting together, they're fishing together, and a lot of those exist in, in, in here. And um, I think they play a big role, man, a very, very big role with um, helping people get through their shit. And uh, and I think they have the ability to really improve a person, you know, really, really improve a person, network, build relationships. And um, so, yeah, I mean, and you know, a lot of people. The, the VA has gotten a lot of scrutiny, of course, mm. but at least through my experience, I've, I've, uh, I've gotten help from them. So, yeah. I mean, on, on both ends. Yeah. I, I think it, it's very subjective for, for how people yeah. have viewed the VA from, from previous interviews I've had, you know, there's been some good experiences. There's been some bad experiences. Um, I, it tends to be, you know, if somebody's been prescribed medication that, you know, that isn't a medication kind of person, but it's somebody that needs to be, like you say, outdoors, fishing, hunting, competitive, um, that they've had a sort of negative experience. Uh, so having these veteran foundations in the US seems to work really, really well. I feel it's something that we're lacking here in the UK. Uh, yes, there are, you know, small veteran sort of charities to to help veterans get on the feet but there's nothing that's really tackling uh mental health and tbis um you know uh, marcus capone with vets uh, warrior hearts healing um you know great charities like that um you know all secure foundation that are really working vets with veterans to to help them i think you know the uk could probably learn something from uh our cousins across the pond would you would you agree with that yeah definitely they could i mean it it's really effective i mean um and i mean as you see and it's tough right all of that's you know it's a, it's a learning process for these mm -hmm. institutions and these organizations along the years but i mean one thing is certain is after 20 years of war you know we've we've got a lot of lessons learned and um these places are are really helpful and uh yeah it's kind of shitty to hear that there's not as much of that influence in, in organization over there. Um, and, you know, I can tell you firsthand, man, I've, I've kind of been able to be take part in a few of those uh, over the years. And, um, and they help, man. It's, again, even if it's you're, you're building just a relationship with somebody you connect with and you get a phone number and that, and, and when you guys break and you're going through some shit, you can just, you have a quick reference to call and, and just touch base with and um, and talk through some stuff and somebody who's willing to who understands your experiences and is willing to kind of 
no matter what time of day or what what's going on, just be willing to engage with you and, and attempt to help um, because they realize how valuable it is because they've likely had to do the same thing. Yeah. Again, it's that camaraderie. It's maintaining that. Um, and it, and like you get into that environment, that, that kind of group environment and you, you get the sense of it. Like, it's okay. It's not just me. These guys have their own shit, their own weird ways that this shit has come up in their lives. You know, a lot of it for me was insecure, insecurity. You know, it was like, I just, I kind of feel weak talking about this stuff, or maybe the effects on me weren't as significant as the effects on somebody else. So I don't feel like I even rate having an issue or something, but I mean, at the end of the day, humility, right? Learning humility and, and just owning it and taking accountability for it. Like, look, dude, everybody's experiences are different. These are mine. They affect me. It's all good. I'm willing to, to improve and get help. And those, those organizations kind of help teach that. Right. And, um, and so you, you see good examples of leadership, right? That all helps, man. I mean, you, you take that all in and, um, and you learn from that, you know, it builds your resilience uh, mentally. And ultimately that helps you in the long run. So very, very important in my opinion. They're, they're very good at breaking down the stigma of um, alpha males that, you know, uh, especially yourselves that have reached the, uh, the SF elements, um, breaking down the stigma of, you know, the alpha males not being able to talk about things that, you know, it, like you said, you're having the, that commander come up to you and telling you, you've got this. I recognize you've got this. You need to get it sorted. It's all right. I've got it. That must, you know, to have that from a CEO to you and then admitting it that he had it himself, that must have been so reassuring. And now to have that when people are leaving the force, they've got all the baggage of everything they've experienced from their viewpoint to have other people, uh, other veterans have foundations to turn around and say to them, from their viewpoint, from their experiences, they've had X, Y, Z. It must be so comforting to to hear that. Yeah, it really was. Like I said, I mean, that that moment when he kind of uh, confronted me about it. And again, he was taking a position of leadership. I mean, taking care of his guys. And, and, and so it kind of even sounds corny, but he's showing he gives, like he cares, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and we don't want... Uh, our subordinates and we don't want our teammates to be suffering or in a shitty position um, unnecessarily and there's there's resources out there you know you just got to be proactive and 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 that's i think a big barrier right is like owning it acknowledging it and taking the step right because you're in this reluctancy you're in this uncertainty and and insecurity about these issues and and just like just being okay with saying, yeah, man, I mean, I got some issues. Um, being able to break through that barrier, right? And I th- again, I think these some of these uh, organizations, right? These private veterans-focused organizations, they help facilitate that that yeah. that that bridge of being like, okay, it's okay to have issues like dude you had eight combat deployments yeah. <laughs> you're gonna have some shit wrong with you man it's yeah. all good even the, even the hardest dudes out there man uh 
who you would never have thought. And, and that's something that I saw was like some of the hardest dudes out there that you would have never thought would have had issues. Uh, and, the, and they do. And so in that sense, and you get exposure to them in, in those types of environments and you're like, it's all good. I can, I can, I can own my shit because I'm not weak. This is just normal. It is what it is, you know? And as a matter of fact, you know, get stronger. Start working through your shit. Own it. Be proactive. And, uh, and get better. And I think it's possible. Now, if, if you could, at this moment in time, take some advice to that 18-year-old you uh, that's, you know, just getting off that bus onto uh, Marine Boot Camp, what advice sitting here now would you tell that young 18 year old man uh you know do the right thing at the right time for the right reason this is much bigger than you stay committed focus on your craft don't screw off so much um stay strong focus on your your wellness um and prioritize you know your wellness because that's so underrated you know you that resiliency yeah. is so necessary right like you're going to want to do this for a long time so start focusing on your resilience and your mental health and all that now um and uh and that's probably it if I could have told myself something, you know, I think that would have helped. Yeah. Uh, and, and my final question to wrap it up is, uh, what advice would you give to a veteran who, who is transitioning from the forces and, and looking at civilian life, be it through a, a choice of their own or a choice that's been taken out of their hands? What would be, you know, the biggest words of advice you could give them? Yeah, I would say, you know, um, find your thing, man. Just find your thing. You got to search for it, though. You got to be proactive, whether that is, you know, some people, they have just one person and that one person, maybe their platoon mate or whatever. And, and that's their thing. That's their thing that helps them. Some people, it's that group environment where they're in that organization that is willing to help people. Some people, it's on their own. They may just be out on the boat fishing by themselves. And that's their sense of peace. Mm. Um, or some of them, it may be their spouse where they can just, you know, to be just completely transparent, confide in them and work through stuff, whatever it is, right? Be proactive in finding your thing that helps because a lot of people I think get bogged down and they won't be proactive to go look for that avenue that is gonna help them. And don't be afraid if you try an avenue and it fails and it wasn't what you expected. Well, fine, man, there's a lot of different uh, things out there that you, you can do uh, and I think, unfortunately, that's probably one of those reasons why a lot of veterans um, just end up taking their own life is because they, they'll entertain one avenue or they went to the VA and they got meds like SSRIs or something. And it's like and it didn't work or it made them feel worse. And then they, they, they give up. And it's like, don't give up, man, like uh, fight. You fought in your damn career. Like life is valuable. Life is precious. Keep fighting. Find your thing and uh and keep trying new things until you get comfortable with one of those routes and um and then go on that and go in hard 
like get well it's okay like it's okay that's what i would tell them like it's it's normal some of the best hardest tier one dudes out there all have their own shit man it is totally normal um but be proactive um that's brilliant advice um christian thank you very much for for coming on the show um you've had some wonderful insights uh into a very interesting career of an 18 year old moving through into marsoc it's been an eye-opener for me um it sounds like you you've got everything squared away in your life now which is fantastic and you've given out some wonderful words of advice so thank you very much for coming on the show it's been a real honor uh, likewise honor to be here man thank you (laughs) 